chapter two. My goal really is to try to do a chapter a week while we're doing this study. It's hard to do because there's so much stuff in every chapter, so we probably will get bogged down eventually, but we're going to try to do uh, chapter two this morning. And again, I just want to remind you why we're doing this, because some people say, you know, this was a book that was written to Jewish believers, you know, who were thinking about giving up the faith and going back to Judaism and whatever. What does that have to do with me? But, uh, but, but like I said last week or a couple of weeks ago, that, that uh, I love this book. And the reason I love this book so much is, is there's an exaltation of Christ that takes place in, in, in this book that you don't even find in the Gospels anywhere. I mean, he is lifted up and lifted up and lifted up and lifted up. And uh, I promise you this, if you spend time in Hebrews, you will come to know your Savior better, and you will worship your Savior more deeply if you take the things to heart that we're going to be talking about as we do the study of this book. So uh, let me read uh, the second chapter uh, this morning. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, uh, and every transgression or disobedience received a just, just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than angels. You have crowned him with a glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, you left nothing outside his control as present. We do not see uh, everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so by, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children, uh, the children God has given me. Uh, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all those who through death a fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery slavery for surely it is not angels that he helps but he helps the offspring of abraham therefore he had to be made like his brothers 
in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted how many sermons could you get out of that a bunch (laughs) well we're going to do our best uh but just remember that the argument that's going on here is, is there are uh, Jewish converts to Christianity uh, who have suffered a great deal because of their faith in Christ. And they're contemplating, obviously, returning back to Judaism, of giving up on Christ because their life has become so miserable. And so the purpose of the author from the very get-go is to demonstrate to them <laughs> <laughs> or basically say to them, have you lost your bloom in mind? <laughs> what you have in Christ compared to what you had in Judaism? No way, no way, Jose. You need to rethink things. You need to refocus on things. And basically, if you want a summation statement of what the whole book is, it would be something like this. It's the demonstration of the sufficiency of Christ and the inefficiency of everything else, or insufficiency of everything else. The exaltation of Christ continues. Notice the focus here on Jesus. God has spoken to us in him, his son. God continues to speak to us in him, his son. Through him he also made the world. Christ is is credited here with the creation of not only the earth that we live on, but the universe around us the sun is the radiance of his glory the 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 exact representation of his nature so when we look on the human nature of christ we see a perfect image of god's image in him he upholds all things by the word of his power in other words he sustains everything that is created And if he ceased to do that, all that has been created would cease to be. He made purification for sins. And after doing so, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. All of those theological things laid forth in chapter 1 and far more than that. Those are just some of the highlights. Chapter 2, his purpose is very obvious, and that is to demonstrate that Jesus is far greater than even the angels. And and, and this is one of the nice things about Hebrews, is he quotes passages to, to, to back up just about everything that he says. So we can have every confidence that what is being taught here is basically Scripture itself. 
Do you ever think about drifting away? Have you ever thought about drifting away? I mean, have you ever had the thought that in, maybe you're in the middle of a crisis or something, and maybe you're in the middle of a crisis simply because you're a believer, and the thought may have been, you know what, life wasn't so bad the way it used to be. Yeah, I had four or three squares a day, and I had a place to, to sleep, and this, that, and the other, and, and there weren't people out there that judged me because of what I thought and believed and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, Maybe sometimes you think I had a lot more freedoms when I was an unbeliever uh, than as I have as, as a believer. We, because of sin, because of besetting sin, have a tendency to drift. That's true of everyone in this room. Most of you know that my, my uh, major in college was biology. Not theology, but biology. Uh, and I have a master's degree in biology. And I used to teach biology classes at the at Central Florida College in Ocala. Uh, and I would tell you that, that science was my first love. <laughs> Not anymore, but it used to be. I always loved science. But when I was in graduate school in Pensacola, uh, the, the school I went to, the University of North Florida, had a very, uh, very well-developed and noted marine science program, and that's why I was there. Uh, and I had the privilege of working on, uh, on a, uh, a project uh, that we were attempting to replant seagrass in Escambia Bay because there were two chemical plants located on the bay. They're still there. They don't do a lot of the stuff they used to do, but they used to dump anything and everything that they didn't want into Escambia Bay, and they literally killed off the grass, and as they killed off the grass, the fish that didn't die, they left. It was like a barren water body. Now, the government had gotten control of things at that point, and they were very much restricted, you know, back in the 70s and 80s as to what they were allowed to do and, and that sort of thing. But obviously, the grass had to come back before the fish came back because the fish depend upon the grass. So I was involved in a project attempting to plant seagrass back into a place where there was none, but at one time there had, it had been plentiful. But I was out with one of the other researchers one day, and, and we had to travel by boat a good distance, probably 10 or 15 miles to get from where we put the boat in the water to where we actually were doing the work we were doing. Because we were, we were planting beds in a remote area away from where people lived and that sort of thing, and it was bordered by uh, uh, a, a national preserve, Air Force, it's Eglin Air Force Base, is humongous. And it borders on one side of that. Uh, but we're in this remote region, and, you know, we do our work, and then we go to, to head back to the boat ramp and turn the key, and nothing happens. <laughs> and this is a, a, an inward outboard, and so you can't, you don't have any pull cord. <laughs> You know, so we're sitting there, and uh, we're trying to get somebody on the radio, and we can't get anybody on the radio, and this, that, and the other. So we were actually working on kind of a, a north bank 
And so what we did, and we needed to go back to the west, and so what we did is we started walking down through the shallows. And we did that probably for, a, you know, pulling a boat behind us. And, and we got finally to where a Scambia Bay cuts through there, and it's a, it's a good distance across there, and the current's pretty strong and all that. So, you know, we don't have any propulsion, really. I think we had a paddle, but, you know, we were talking about a 20-foot boat, you know, that weighs a lot and this, that, and the other, uh, and whatever. But anyway, so we started, we pushed our way out into the current of the river, uh, and we started drifting. <laughs> You know, and our hope was that some boat was going to see us and come out and rescue us, which is what happened. A shrimper actually came along and towed us in and, and whatever. But we were drifting out to sea, and we had no control over the boat at all. It was going wherever it wanted to. The reason I bring this up is this. Is that every one of us has a tendency to drift We just do. One of these days we will no longer have that desire or that, that inclination at all. But, but where we are right now, because we have not been perfected in our salvation, every one of us has a tendency to drift. So this is a warning to us. To be engaged and whatever it takes to reduce it, to stop it. I don't know how many times you've heard me say things like this over the years. God has given us a great gift to keep us on course, to keep us from drifting, as we all are prone to do, every one of us. There's no exception to it. And that is the word of God. It's our anchor that helps to keep us from drifting. It teaches us what God wants us to know. It teaches us God's truth. My passion is for everyone in this room to be a student of the Bible. I beg you, do not depend upon me to teach you everything you need to know. I can't. It's not my job to do that. Don't drift. Be in the Word. There is a world out there that still has an appeal to us in certain ways, in certain fashions. And a wholehearted commitment to the study and the reading of the Word of God is the only thing that will keep us from drifting to places we never thought that we would go. The Protestant Reformation was about a number of things, but one of the, 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 the principal and primary one, the one that was at the heart and soul of everything, was scripture or, scripture or sola scriptura.
the Protestant Reformation, in a sense, was basically this, a re-anchoring of a church that had drifted a long way. Why? Because it had given up on the idea of sola scriptura. People believed that the church spoke with the same authority that the Bible did. And hallelujah for the reformers. Because they are the ones who threw out the anchor. That got the church back on track. Scripture alone is what keeps, well, the Holy Spirit working too. You need to understand that. But God has given us the Bible for a lot of reasons. But one of those reasons to keep us from drifting as we are all prone to do. The church to whom the author of this book writes is a church that's adrift because they are not relying on the scriptures. In chapter 2, he focuses a great deal on the angels, which we will get to. Well, we can start now. Uh, you will have the appearance of angels a few times in the New Testament, but not all that often. The Old Testament, considerably more. Why? Because angels were the messengers. So why not so much anymore? Well, it's because the, me the real messenger that they all pointed to has actually come. They did not have the complete scriptures before them. They only had a portion of it. You and I have all of it. In other words, we don't have the same need today for God to speak to us in the way that he often did to people in the Old Testament where he sent forth angels very often. He sent angels to Abraham. He sent an angel to Jacob. He sent an angel to Moses. He sent an angels to Israel, he sent angel to David, he sent an angel to Elijah. Basically to tell them what God's message was for them to then go and tell the people. We have no need for angels today, really. It'd be nice, don't get me wrong, it'd be nice if an angel appeared every now and then and I had a conversation with them, I'd love that. Well, maybe not. Probably would terrify me. Maybe that's why God doesn't do this so much. That we no longer have a need for a messenger to tell us what God says. Because all of those angels in the Old Testament pointed toward the real one who was to come Jesus Christ. He has declared to us the greatest message ever sent to sinners. The gospel of salvation through faith in him and repentance of our sin. Whereby we have absolute 
acceptance and forgiveness into his beloved community eternally. The author's concern is for the people that he is writing to. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Unfortunately, there are people in every generation, there have been people in every generation who have never heard the gospel one time in their whole lifetime. But there are also people who have heard it and yet they have rejected it. Sometimes I think the sinfulness of our own mind kind of confuses us because sometimes we actually think this, it might be better off. Some, someone may be better off of me not ever telling them what the gospel is. There's a sense in which they would be better off if I don't tell them if they don't accept it. Because it puts them in a place of deeper and greater judgment because they have more knowledge than they had before. Some of you in this room may be very great, wonderful evangelists and every person you've ever spoken to about Christ has come to faith. But I would imagine there may be some people in this room who have never even had a conversation with someone else about Jesus. But if you do, sometimes you'll see fruit and sometimes you won't. That's all, that's all up to God. And that's the only place you're going to be comfortable is understanding that. He calls me to do what he calls me to do. I've got to do it. It's up to him what the outcome is. I can't control that. But you could say this. There is a sense in which people would be better off never to hear the gospel If they reject it. Because it puts them in a place of greater accountability. Than other people who never hear the gospel in their whole life. Unfortunately I think sometimes people have this thinking. That if that's true then, then I don't know so and so is going to believe if I share the gospel with them. So maybe I shouldn't. Because if I do and they reject it, then that makes them more accountable. That that is wrong thinking. That is very wrong thinking. What we need to be thinking about is this. What if I didn't share the gospel with them and they would have believed if I had. In other words, what I'm telling you here is, is, is even though the cursings are very great, the blessings are far greater. And that is our motivation for sharing the gospel with other people because we love them, because we care for them, because we want them to have what we have.
But just like with you and me, God has to send forth His Holy Spirit and begin the change internally. We cannot do that. That is not our job. It's not our responsibility. As we said before, one of the primary things that the author is talking about here in the second chapter is to demonstrate... That even though angels often play a role in the big picture, that much of their message had to do with Christ's coming. Much of the, many of the things to, that he told to the forefathers in the Old Testament were, were things that had to do with the Savior who was to come. But he has come. Angels don't play quite the role that they used to. Have you ever seen one? Have you ever talked to anybody that's ever seen one? Well, maybe. Or somebody that claimed to see one. He makes some very powerful statements. Verse 5, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. It is to the Son, the Son of God, and also to those who belong to Him. When I was a kid, if you'd have asked me, I thought, I, really, I believe this. I believe that when you die, you went to be with God in heaven, and that was the end of it. The end of the story. There was a, uh, a movie that we used to watch almost every year. And in those days, you know, I, we grew, I grew up in the South. And we had a Bible teacher that came into our third grade class in public school every Friday. Now, can you imagine something like that taking place today? But I learned about Jesus not only in church. I learned about Jesus in public school. And in conversations I had with neighbors. Christ is far greater than the angels. Christ created the angels. G.K. Chesterton writes this, and I agree with it 100%. He said, whatever is true or not true about men, this one thing is certain. Man is not what he was meant to be. We were meant to be those who were reflections of the image of God into the creation that he made around us. 
Suffering is something that we have in common with all people. There's no one that has ever been born into this world that doesn't experience suffering in some form or other. Sometimes our suffering is a product of our own sin and sometimes it's a result of the sins of other people. And very often those two things are melded together. Jesus suffered in ways and to a degree that it's impossible for you and I to even begin to understand or comprehend it at all. Whatever suffering that we endure in this life and the life to come and that we've endured already is nothing, nothing in comparison. There was no sin in the world, there would no, be no suffering in the world, but there is sin and therefore what can we conclude? That there will be suffering. Sin causes suffering. Sin is the cause of ever suffering that anyone has ever suffered. Sin comes first, suffering follows, even if it's not immediate. Why do you think it was so hard for many of the Jewish people to receive Christ as the Messiah? One of the things I would say, too, is, is in their theology, there was no place for a suffering son Messiah. Their Messiah was this, this almighty kingly person who was going to come and conquer all their enemies and make their life hunky-dory and all that. It didn't have anything to do with dealing with sin or anything. Sin comes first. Suffering always follows. Lindsay will tell you this. <laughs> that as she and her two brothers and her sister grew up in our household, that at least on occasion, Lori or I or both disciplined them. Lindsay didn't get disciplined much. Matter of fact, I can't remember a specific time ever. <laughs> <laughs> she's a great lady we love her to death but there were times when we didn't we did not punish our children maybe when we should have a lot of times parents over punish kids don't get me they, they do there are a lot of situations where, the, where the, the suffering inflicted by punishment far exceeds the crime. And that should not be. 
But there were times when the kids would do something and we just didn't even feel like dealing with it. <laughs> and if you're a parent, you know what we're talking about. There are times when you let your kids slide a little bit just because you don't want to be bothered with having to go through the grief of punishing them. But just remember this, God cannot do that when it comes to us. He cannot. He'd have to stop being God to ever allow any of us to get away scot-free. He cannot, he never will turn a blind eye to even the littlest of sins. It's against his very nature to do that. He would have to stop being God before he could let one single sin go unpunished. No one can have an absolutely free pass. Ever. See, Jesus is not interested in followers who go through the motions only. He wants your heart. And he will settle for nothing less. Nor should he. Well, he talks about angels a lot in this chapter, and I haven't really talked much about them this morning. They're mentioned 273 times in Scripture, angels. They play, they played, and they, had, and they continue to play an important role in God's scheme of things. The technical definition is God's messenger. In other words, they're the ones that God sends when he wants messages to be carried. Angels mentioned five times in chapter 2. Many, many times. Throughout the book. And even though they have played an important role in the overall scheme of things, it is man who takes center stage. People like us in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture, however, are angels called children of God. Nowhere in Scripture does it declare that angels are made in the image of God. So I would say the overall point that this, this author of Hebrews is making in the second chapter here is that angels are not the crown of God's glory. We are. We are. 
as hard as that fact may be to believe. But it's a truth that ought to leave us in absolute and utter amazement. We are God's emissaries, just like the angels were. We are God's messengers, just like the angels were. I mean, you do notice this, that in the Old Testament, angels were pretty active, not so much in the New. But the work still has to be done, so who's doing the work? We are. We who are made in God's image. We who are made in God's splendor. We who are made in God's precious, beautiful image. As the Apostle John writes, See how great a love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. Beloved, now we are children of God, and has not appeared as yet what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because... We shall see him as he is. He never says anything like that to an angel. We are the crown of his creation. And yet we still have to deal with sin. Right? I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired of it. And that would be true, just as true, maybe even more true, If you guys were not even in this room. You know whose sin I'm sick and tired of? I've had enough of it. It's beat me up. It's banged me up. This, that, and the other. It's my own. Why do I continue to do the things that I do? But again, our hope is not in our doing. Our hope is in his doing. And we have this unbelievable promise. 
from 1 John 3. It has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Sin and its effects gone forever, completely, absolutely. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? What life will be like in the time to come. I don't know about you, but he's got a lot more work to do on me to get me ready. But the best thing for us to do is to be broken before him. He and he alone will lift us up. He and he alone is able to lift us up. Keep your eyes ahead. Keep your eyes on the prize. If you do that, if I do that, let me tell you, every day that we live is going to look a whole lot different than it will if we don't. We live in the now, but we also live in the not yet. But one of these the not days, the not yet will be the now. Hallelujah.